Hello, this is Colin McCallum with the Is This Legal podcast. We hope you're enjoying our show. Please do us a favor and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and click on the subscribe button so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Is This Legal? Here are your hosts, attorneys Colin McCallum and Russell Hevitz. Yeah, baby, you like that? Uh, here we are back again. Is this legal? Uh, I'm Colin McCallan, and I am alongside my partner, Russell Hebbets. Say hi. Hello, everyone, and we hope you enjoyed our rockin' new intro. That's right. We got some new themed theme music that we're debuting with this episode. Um, you know, that prior jingle was just this little uh, thing I recorded in my basement like four years ago, and um, our paralegal and sound engineer... Uh, Jason Totes uh, is also a great guitar player and I asked him a couple months ago to see if he could beef up our intro music and I think he really delivered in spades. What do you think Russ? I think it is outstanding and I mean it's almost too easy for him. I mean (laughs) he you know you you asked him a couple months ago but I I think he put all of like five minutes into that (laughs) and came out with that work of art. It was pretty amazing. Anyway, we're excited about that. So thank you to Jason. Big shout out uh, for giving us some new theme music. And um, today we're going to be doing a little bit of a different episode, certainly uh, different from the last couple episodes we've done. We're hopefully going to be a little bit more lighter in topic. We're doing Q&A, Ask the Experts today. Right, Russ? We've been stocking up on questions that our loyal listeners have been asking over the past couple weeks and months. And we have enough where we think we're going to dedicate a whole episode to answering those questions. Yeah, but don't let it stop here. If you guys ever have something that you'd like us to discuss, um, you know where to find us. We're on Twitter. It is this legal pod. We're on our Facebook page. Uh, You can email us or text us if you know us, if you're lucky enough to actually have our digits. Um, We would love to get in contact with you and uh, do another one of these episodes. But uh, getting right to it, um, our first question actually comes from my loving sister, Cora. Uh, who lives in Austin, Texas. Uh, She, by the way, was uh, the person who suggested that we do uh, the episode on Rayshard Brooks, which was our last episode. So thank you for that suggestion. Um, And uh, we were talking about that case, and Cora asked a really good question, which is, um, don't the police, shouldn't, shouldn't the police have the ability to use their firearm to wound a fleeing suspect or a dangerous suspect? as opposed to just the shoot-to-kill mentality. So, Russ, the question is, can, can the police maim or wound somebody uh, you know, in, a, in, in a life-threatening altercation, either the, the other person or the police? Is that, is that ever allowed? I mean, it happens, right? <laughs> it does happen. <laughs> but um, short answer is no. Um, and there's, there's some really good reasons for that no. Um, first of all, you know, you look at, let's take the, um, Rayshard Brooks case, which we just talked about on our last podcast, that officer, when he shot, he fired three times. He was only maybe 15, maybe 20 feet away from Rayshard Brooks when he fired those shots. And two of the shots hit Rayshard Brooks. The third one hit a vehicle that has three people with three people in it right there so you know you're talking about the difference between shooting for the torso and shooting for limbs when 
they're always going to be moving targets. Right. And that's not that far different. Well, and really what we're talking about here is deadly force, right? If you are using a firearm, I, I don't care what you're aiming at. There is a potential that you're going to kill a person, a high potential that you're going to kill a person if you shoot a person with a firearm. And so, you know, there's there's a couple things that go against the shoot-to-wound theory. I mean, uh, first of all, don't we want to, I guess, incentivize our police officers to only use their firearm if they absolutely have to? Right, right. We don't want to create situations where they're like, oh, well, he's fleeing. I'm I'm just going to try and wing him in the shoulder real quick. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the firearm is a last resort, right? It is lethal force, like you said. I mean, you can shoot someone in the leg, hit an artery, and kill them. Police have these other means of force for a reason. They have tasers for a reason. They have batons or nightsticks for a reason. They're trained in hand-to-hand combat for a reason so that they have these non-lethal ability to subdue defendants or suspects without using that lethal force. Well, that's true, too. And and there's not only that consideration— but there, you know, there's there's a lot of evidence to say that if you you know shoot someone in an effort to wound them, that might actually not stop the threat. They might still be charging at you. But that may it, just it, piss them off. It, well, <laughs> <laughs> and at the, and it, so at that point, are you justified in killing them because your first attempt to wound them didn't work? And I mean, it just opens up a Pandora's box of problems, right? And, and it's and it's way too hard to say. I'm I'm so good at marksmanship that I'm right. going to hit this person in the arm or leg and not in the torso. Right. I think it, where we are moving as a police force is uh, shoot less right, generally. Right, right. So we, um, we want to basically we want to be more like the Mounties. <laughs> <laughs> Dudley do right. Our friends up north. Right, right. Do they get do they carry guns? I think I, I think mostly they do not. Okay. All right. They carry horses though. Same same I think horses carry them actually. That's the way to say it. <laughs> All right. So thanks Cora. That was a great question. Um, who uh, who are we going to hear from next, Russ? Who uh, next? We are going to uh, shout out to Joseph from Knoxville, Tennessee, who had a great question after our George Floyd podcast. And so his question was, um, you know, in that podcast we talked about the fact that um, Officer Chauvin uh, was charged with manslaughter in addition to murder, and he said. As to the discussion about manslaughter in the second degree, it seems like up to 10 years, if that's the only conviction, would not sit well with the public or feel like justice has been served. So my question is whether or not a hate crime is applicable to this charge. The thought being that that would amplify the penalty. Um, Great, great question. So Joseph and everyone out there who is thinking about it, That's a great question, and it really, the answer varies from state to state, but the one thing that's consistent across everywhere is to charge a hate crime, or what what we'll talk about, which is a a sentence enhancer of a hate crime, what do you have to prove, Colin? Well, you have to prove that there actually was a hate crime. You you have to prove, you have to prove that... You, you you have to demonstrate that the crime was committed on the basis of race or ethnicity. Uh, it, it can't be a question mark. It can't be, well, we think that's what happened. That has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Exactly. And, and here's, here's what Colorado's hate crime statute reads for that relevant section. A person commits 
a bias-motivated crime if with the intent to intimidate or harass another person because of that person's actual or perceived race, color, religion, ancestry, national origin, physical, mental disability, or sexual orientation. So you have to show that the crime was committed for that reason. So in the George Floyd case, yes, we have a white officer kneeling on a black man's neck. We clearly have differences in race, but we don't have any external evidence, any objective evidence to say that the reason why he did that is because George Floyd was black. Yeah, I think you would need more. I think that uh, I, I think that the officer would have needed to say something uh, like a racial slur or right. something that would right. that would make his motives more clear. And I just don't think we have that in this particular case. Even though, of course, clearly race is the the biggest kind of undertone in this whole thing, right? Right, exactly. So, like like an example would be like if it's an arson or something, and someone um, paints swastikas on a Jewish temple, sure, right? Or even if there's an assault kind of like this where you don't have any evidence at the time, but if that person, that defendant, that suspect just posted on Facebook this hate-filled rant yeah, they're, against blacks. Or they're members of white supremacy groups right. who are advocating violence on black people, things like that. Th those could certainly be used to try and further establish someone's motive. Right. And then those, those hate crimes that we talked about, that can be either a crime in and of itself, which is what Colorado yep. has. Yep. That's a standalone crime. That's you a could, felony offense. If, if Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It couldn't be a misdemeanor or a felony. Um, but in other states... It's an aggravator. How's that work? Or an enhancer? Right. So if it's working as, as a sentence enhancer, um, it, it's going to apply to another crime. So let's say you're talking about the crime of murder in connection with being a hate crime. Um, in some states aren't going to charge the hate crime separately. They're going to charge murder, but they're also going to have an enhancer where the prosecution has to say, not only was this person murdered, but he was murdered because of the defendant's animosity toward uh, this person's heritage. And, and if, that still has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, even though it's not a separate crime. Right. And if they do prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, going back to Joseph's question, then instead of, in his example, you get a max of 10 years, maybe it's a max of 20 that years. That increases the range. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, thanks a lot, Joe. Um, all right. Now, next person we're going to hear from is a loyal listener, uh, Phil from Pennsylvania. Uh, he actually asked a couple of good questions, and Russ, Russ and I are going to take these in turn. Um, the first question is for us defense lawyers, uh, and the question is, look, uh, when you sit down and meet with a client and they tell you what happened and they basically tell you that they're guilty of that crime, well, how can you continue to represent them? So, and, and that's not the first question, uh, first time I've heard that question before. Uh, Russ, have you ever heard that before? That, yeah, once or twice or <laughs> a thousand or 10,000 times. It's, it, 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 but it is a really good question. And, and I think that, that uh, sometimes uh, we defense attorneys are misunderstood in terms of what we're, what we're attempting to do here. Just because a person has a defense lawyer does not mean that their chief objective is to get their case dismissed or their, that their objective is to go to trial and win and have all of the charges defeated. Um, I mean, that's certainly, that's certainly something that we look at in every single case. And, of course, everybody is presumed innocent. 
uh, and must be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But but of course, there are cases where the person that we're meeting with is absolutely stone cold dead to rights uh, with the charges that they have. And so um, the way I would answer that, Russ, and, and feel free to add in here is, well, like I said, what is our role here? Our role is to advocate for our client to the best that we can. Our role is to minimize the ramifications that our client is going to be exposed to to the best we can. Our, our job is going to be to advise the client on whether or not they should take a deal versus not taking a deal. Um, and we, we have many discussions uh, over the course of representation with our clients around all of these issues. But, you know, if, if a person is guilty of their crime, what we're, what we're going to take a look at doing is, well, can we mitigate that? If the person, say, committed a DUI case, we want to get that person in treatment. We want to get that person right. maybe some help uh, in a psychological capacity if it's warranted. And, uh, and, and in lieu of maybe in that example, in lieu of more jail, right? right? What, what serves everyone better, right? And, and it's not just, obviously, we're, our goal is to represent the client, like you said, to the best of our ability. Um, but, you know, in a case like that, this is better for society too. Right. Because if you can get someone into treatment, if someone, if it's a DUI and they have an alcohol problem, if it's a case where, you know, if it's a burglary and there's an underlying opioid addiction that's right. driving that, right? If you can get these people in treatment, that helps everyone. So oftentimes, you know, we're trying, like you were saying, to mitigate the damage to the person and to their life and try to get them moving forward in a positive way. Um, and, that's, and that's one main answer to that question. Well, in 95% of cases, Russ, uh, resolve by plea agreement. They don't go to trial. That's still all the work of defense attorneys uh, and prosecutors trying to work together to see what they can do. Um, but, but yeah, we, what we're trying to do is really take, uh, we, we look at the case on an individual basis and we see what, what can we do for our client? What can't we do for the client? And, and, I, and by the way, we're very transparent with the client in terms of managing their expectations. You know, we, we're never going to say, oh yeah, when they walk into the door, we're getting your case thrown out. We're getting your case dismissed. Or, you know, we're going to, we're going to demand an apology from the DA and we're going to sue them for everything they got. Those those are empty promises. You can't you can't make those types of guarantees. You really have to take some time to look at the reports, to look at the police information, to look at your client, to look at you know. And and, and that's the other thing too, Russ. Is uh, we want to humanize our clients to our prosecutors, right, and to our judges. Yeah, absolutely. Like you wanna you wanna basically let them know that this isn't just what's in the this person is not just what's in the police report. Right. You may be looking at a snapshot, which is the worst day in this person's life. Often and, it is. And, right. Often it is. And, and um, you know, that police report doesn't show everything else that's been going on. It doesn't show all the volunteer hours that this person has put in working with at risk youth. It doesn't show doesn't show so many things. So that's a big part of the job. Um, before we move on, I'll say there's there's another answer to that question, though. And that is part of our job is to hold law enforcement Accountable. Accountable right. to, to following the rules that society has. Absolutely. Right? So if it's a case where, you know, a cop busts into someone's house without a warrant, without justification, and in violation of constitutional rights, we're going to fight for that, even if 
there is a pile of drugs there. That's exactly right. Right? Yep. Because that violates the Constitution. It violates a person's individual rights. And, and that affects all of us. It does. It, it, it is bigger than that single case. And you have to hold those officers accountable and make sure that that doesn't happen again. Because next time, it could be any one of us. That's right. So uh, Phil has another part of this question, which is also great. Uh, and something we're going to talk about, which is, uh, Russ, I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to ask you this from Phil. Do you limit your defense by telling your lawyer everything? If you tell them the 100% truth about what happened, are you actually limiting what your attorney can do for you? Yeah, so that's a great question, Phil. Um, that that's a really good question. I'll tell you, as defense attorneys, we always do want our clients to tell us everything. The worst is when we don't know something and then. The DA has information that is a surprise to us, and it might even be in direct conflict with what we're telling them. Um, But to answer your question, um, yeah, it does limit our defense in some ways, because if someone tells us something, like they make an admission to us. Now, we have an attorney-client privilege where we can't disclose that to anyone, right? We're not going to go tell the DA. We're not going to go tell anyone about that. But... We're officers of the court, and if we have a trial or we have anything testimonial, what can't we do, Colin? We can't suborn perjury. Right. We, so if the client tells us in confidence, yep, I robbed the liquor store, um, we cannot have our client testify knowingly saying, I didn't rob the liquor store. Right. We, we would not be able to ethically put him on the stand. Couldn't, couldn't put him on the stand. That, that violates our oath as attorneys. And I will say, th- this actually leads to, that there really are two schools of thought on this. I mean, I remember I had a conversation with a public defender friend of mine who said, look, I actually don't go into detail with my clients. I try and just get the bare-bone facts. I specifically don't want my client to tell me too much because that limits our ability to go forward. I personally disagree with that theory. I mean, I, I come down on it where I want to know everything. I don't want any surprises. Um, right. I, I, I need to know everything from the client because, you know, he was there in the situation. I wasn't. And I need to know if what, what the truth is compared to what the officers write down or what, what an alleged victim might have written down. You know, we need to hear it directly from the, the horse's mouth. So I don't think the, the putting your, you know, the head in the sand right. approach, right. I, I don't think that's doing your client any good, even though it might limit his ability to lie in court later. Yeah, doesn't doesn't work for ostriches. Doesn't work for us. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it does work for ostriches. I don't know if it. I don't know how that evolved. Why like, else would they put their head in the sand? We, we, There's got to be something down there that we we, we, need. we we need to get a scientist on to explain that because <laughs> shout out. We need to know why ostriches put their head in the sand. Yeah, right. If, if anyone knows, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Write, write us about crime or ostriches. <laughs> or ostriches, hit us up. Uh, by the way, here ostriches are delicious have you ever had one russ i i know they're fast I, they're they're probably hard to catch <laughs> right um but I, I i don't know i think there's something called an ostrich steak out there that's apparently pretty tasty i've never had it let us know folks yeah people want to know <laughs> yeah let us know what's um, next uh, where, where, so, where are we going next so next is if we have a um we have a question from oh this is from our friend andy this is our our long time faithful oh. listener andy in overland park kansas long time long time listener First-time caller. I think Andy. he's not a first-time caller. Yeah. I think he's a, maybe a first-time texter. I don't know. But he texted us uh, this question. Um, and again, I think this is coming off some of the uh, police stuff that we've been seeing over the last few weeks. But his question is this. 
if a police officer violates a police department procedure, is that a crime or something akin to a human resource violation, that kind of thing? Man, we are really getting good questions today. We're getting great questions. So, Andy, another another good one there on that. And uh, the answer is depends. Yep. It, it, it actually seems to depend should, on the state. Should, should we move on? We've <laughs> <laughs> done. Answered. We've answered. There you go, Andy. Um, well, this, we, we actually, we were looking into this ourselves, actually, um, because Atlanta police officer Rolf, who was the officer in the Atlanta shooting of Rayshard Brooks, so he's charged with 11 counts. Four of those counts, Russ, are violations of oath of office. Right. So they actually charged him with four separate violations relating to how he used the taser uh, against a fleeing suspect, how, right. you know, basically how he shot a fleeing suspect. All of those were not only crimes, but they were also independent crimes relating to um, his police procedure. So in, in Georgia, those cases... Are th- those situations can be prosecuted as crimes? Yes, one of the same. They basically criminalized their um, police policies exactly by through this oath of office statute. Now, Colorado has no analogous statute. Yeah, exactly. So, so in Colorado, um, they would not be able to charge him with that. It would strictly be a procedural, right, administrative internal, thing. administrative thing. You know, you're talking about losing your job, being you know, on suspension. suspension. Uh, a day without pay, right. uh, desk duty, things like that. Those are all administrative sanctions, but you're not going to go to court for those. You're not going. You could be sued. You could right. be exposed to uh, civil liability, um, which I mean, also that that that's. We could do a whole other podcast on suing the police and how difficult it is, although that might be changing oh. with some recent law. Well, yeah, yeah. Fun fact. Uh, yeah. Qualified immunity is just uh, thrown out. Let's, this. Let's talk about qualified immunity. Tell, uh, let our listeners know what it is and so what just happened here. Qualified immunity is where you basically, as a citizen, are not allowed to sue government employees for their actions during the course of their, their business. business. Right. If right. they're if they're working with the the term is the color of their authority. Right. They get a ton of protection. Yeah. At least they did. At least they did. So what happened with uh, quality immunity the, in Colorado? That here just very recently was overturned. Um, so qualified immunity in Colorado is gone, which means you can now sue government employees who individually. are individually who are working. Under the color of their authority, so they're at work, they're doing things, they do something that is a violation of your rights, causes you some sort of damage. Um, You can go after punitive damages, so it opens the door to holding those government employees, like police officers, accountable. Exactly. And, you know, I, I'll i be honest with you, I'm a little worried about the chilling effect of that. Because I, in the end, I do think it's a good decision. But at the same time, if you're wanting to become a police officer, and now you know that you might not be protected for something that you, you, know, you think you do reasonably in the line of duty, I don't know. Uh, it'll be curious to see how some of these cases shake out. But that's one of the big demands that I think his, that his, that uh, activists have been asking for in the wake of all these police protests. They've been, activists have been working for this stuff for years, and it is only the recent events nationally that have just kind of broken the floodgates open. And, you know, people, people think that all of these 
police reforms that are getting pushed through at various various levels of government um, are out of nowhere, but they have been in the works and there have been people who have been working for this for literally years. Yep. So um, great question, Andy. Uh, it really kind of depends on the state. Um, and of course, we mentioned this in the other podcast, tutors, to put a bow on this. You know, the federal government also can prosecute um, misconduct by the police if the misconduct causes a civil rights violation. So if someone's constitutional rights are violated, there may not be a criminal violation in that person's state, but that can always be looked at later by the federal government. The federal government can actually prosecute police officers in those situations. Yeah, and if you want more information on that, you could go listen to our uh, George Floyd podcast. We talked about that a yep. little bit. So we have one more that we'll wrap up with, and that is from Jenny from Phoenix. So thank you, Jenny. Jenny put in the question, um, if you're stopped for a DUI, do you have to take a test? And if you do, what are the re- if you don't, what are the repercussions of that? Um, great question. And again, that, that does vary somewhat state by state, but there has also been some recent Supreme Court, um, a recent Supreme Court decision that talks about this, right? Let's, let's look at it uh, first in this light. I mean, does, does the taking of a test, like, wait a minute, Russ, that sounds an awful like uh, I'd be incriminating myself. Doesn't the Fifth Amendment protect me from offering any evidence that might actually incriminate me? Those, that is the argument. That is the argument that um, seems to make logical sense that lawyers have put forward. And the Supreme Court very recently came out and said, well, maybe. Here, here's, here's what they said. They said, if it's a blood test, I agree with you. Um, that does... That does, that's a level of intrusion that is high, and that does um, basically trigger your protections, your constitutional protections. That is um, a search, and you need to get a warrant for that. But breath, having you blowing something, no big deal. Yeah. So you don't need a warrant for that, and that doesn't implicate, that's not testimonial. Yeah, the Supreme Court in Birchfield v. North Dakota, a 2016 opinion written by Justice Alito, he actually separated blood tests from breath tests. And he said, basically, blood tests are more intrusive to the person. Um, You're talking about venipuncture, removing a substance from a person's body. That requires a search warrant. Um, and then the breath test is, is they say that doesn't rise to the level of being as intrusive as a blood test. So you can if, if, if you can act, you can basically get someone to do a breath test without getting a warrant first, whereas you need a warrant for a blood test. Now, the Supreme Court, though, still says that blood test, breath test, those things are what we call non-testimonial evidence. And that means that they're not subject to the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. They're subject to the Fourth Amendment against reasonable searches and seizures because it is a search and seizure when they draw blood from you, but not when you blow. But it's not a Fifth Amendment analysis. So it does not violate, according to the Supremes, uh, a blood test does not violate your right against self-incrimination. But here's, here's, I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on this and we don't want to dive too deep into the weeds on this, but um, here, here's a short, short answer. You can always face repercussions through DMV. That's right. So through your local DMV, because you don't have, that's not a constitutional action. They're not, 
they're not depriving you of a constitutional right by taking your license. You don't have a right to drive. You may think you do. It's considered a privilege. It's a privilege that can be revoked by the state. So, So that does not trigger your constitutional protections, which means if you refuse in any state, if you refuse, they can say, okay, you refuse, I'm going to take your license. Yeah. And they can also use your refusal to take a test in court against you uh, if you're saying I'm not guilty of that underlying charge of DUI. Right. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, there you go. Uh, I guess the short answer to that question from Jenny is, yeah, you do have to take a test. Uh, In most states, you probably already agreed to it by getting your driver's license. And if you don't take the test, you can certainly uh, lose your license and that information can still be used against you. That being said, while you may face repercussions, if you refuse a blood test, they can't independently charge you with a crime for refusing to take a blood yeah. test. Yeah. So you still can refuse. And Birchfield actually uh, was the one that codified that. They, yes. they said, look, you can't actually create a new crime right. for refusing to take a test. They, they basically say you can you can just leave that to the administrating agency, the Department of Motor Vehicles, to take the person's so, license. So I guess final answer out there, anyone out there, you know, if you don't mind losing your license, hey, feel refuse free. Refuse all you want. Feel free to refuse all you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, there we go. I think we're going to call that a podcast. Um, We really appreciate the feedback from the listeners. We love getting questions like this. We think they lend to really good uh, conversations and hopefully learn something. Yeah, keep them coming. We really enjoy it. Uh, One more time, our shout-out information. You can find us at Twitter, IsThisLegalPod. You can find us on Facebook. Hebbets McCallan is our page. Um, and uh, you can go to our website, hebbetsmccallan.com. That's another way to get a hold of us. We would love to hear from you. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know what you think of our new theme music. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Is This Legal? See you next time. <laughs>